0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back
1: to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to discuss part two of the neuromuscular blocking process. If you haven't tuned into our first discussion, I recommend that you do that before you listen to this one. We discuss the physiology of a stimuli being sent down through the axon and causing the depolarization of a muscle to contract. And then we discussed the differences between the categories of depolarizing agents and non-depolarizing agents to inhibit that process. Today, we want to discuss more specifically the various medications that we can do in these categories and what the side effects would be of those and the duration of action, the onset, and just the specifics between each one So Tanner, do you want to take us away with the one and only depolarizing agent, succinylcholine?
0: Yeah. And like you just said, this one will be shorter than the other category because we only have one to worry about, succinylcholine. And so this is the fastest onset when we talk about the neuromuscular blockers. This onset is only 30 to 60 seconds duration is about 5 to 10 minutes and so its duration can be similar to some of the non depolarizing neuromuscular blockers but the real key here is that its onset is so quick you will often see this with rsi's and that is really the main draw for using succinylcholine succinylcholine is broken down if you remember from the last episode we talked about the pseudocholinesterase or the plasma cholinesterase pick one of the many different names for it, and these are created in the liver, and then these pseudocholinesterase will break down the succinylcholine. If you remember when we talked about how these work, this will depolarize the postsynaptic nicotinic receptors, and I think Cole, you discussed this in the last episode, where you have sodium and calcium rushing in. And then you have potassium that is going to rush out of these nicotinic receptors. For that reason, you will have a risk of hyperkalemia with these patients that you give sucks to. This is going to be exaggerated in uh, patients with kidney disease. Not that they'll have an increased reaction to the succinylcholine. It's just that they're already at a risk for hyperkalemia. So if they have a high potassium level and then you increase it even more, then you can be in a dangerous level. Usually, this only increases your potassium by about 0.5 to 1 mil equivalents per liter. Some other side effects that you want to think about is that this will cause an increase in intraocular pressure. This is debated somewhat as far as the actual significance of this. Some will say that if you have an open-globe injury, you do not want to give succinylcholine. Others will say, uh, well, you have to obviously take every patient on a case-by-case basis, so the benefits may outweigh the risk there with open-globe injury. They also talk about how you have increased intragastric pressure. Usually these are done in an RSI case, so possibly you already have risk for aspiration. And so again, this is something to consider. Maybe you'd want to give an increased dose of a non-depolarizer instead of the succinylcholine. Again, uh, there's some discrepancy about how significant that actually is clinically.
1: Some discrepancy that I've seen on that, is that they also say succinylcholine will increase your lower esophageal sphincter contraction and tone, which would then offset the increased intragastric pressure. So then you wouldn't have that
0: risk of aspiration. You also want to think about, since this is a depolarizer, this can be a trigger for malignant hyperthermia. So obviously, if this patient was at risk for malignant hyperthermia, you would not give succinylcholine, And then also... Since it's a depolarizing medication, you can have increased risk for rhabdo with patients, especially if they have extrajunctional receptors.
1: And the biggest thing that we see when we give this medication in children is that, one, children often haven't had surgery before, and so we don't know if they have a history of malignant hyperthermia, so that could develop. Two, they may have undiagnosed neuromuscular disorders such as muscular dystrophy, which would then, if you remember from our musculoskeletal talk, it's where you have the breakdown of dystrophin and allows more holes to develop in the muscle membrane and cause rhabdo to occur as well. And so if we don't know if a pediatric patient has this disease or other type of neuromuscular diseases, then we're at risk of having side effects occur like kidney injury from the increase in the myoglobin being released or the hyperkalemia that's going to be released etc. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're dealing with kiddos. They add a whole other layer to the table in terms of either us not knowing if they have a disorder prior to surgery or they haven't had surgery before and we're going to be the first ones to be giving them these kind of medications. The other big side effect you see in kids is bradycardia. And this is because the succinylcholine can also bind to the M2 receptor in the heart, specifically at the SA node. What this does then is it causes bradycardia to occur by inhibiting the SA node from firing as frequently. And so obviously this would put the patient at risk for bradycardia. And because kids are more hypersensitive to this, that's why they're more likely to have the bradycardic episodes when you give succinylcholine. Kids are also really at risk for the hyperkalemia and that's why there's a black box warning for succinylcholine with kids just because of the high increase in potassium that is potential to be caused when we give this medication. And for what I said before, how we don't know if they might have conditions that would warrant otherwise for us not to give this medication. On the flip side, you're also gonna see tachycardia. So I know I just said bradycardia, but you can also have tachycardia. This is more likely to be seen in adults. And it's because the succinylcholine will bind to the sympathetic ganglia, which then will cause tachycardia and hypertension. So just know that you can kind of see either of the two flip sides with this medication that we give.
0: Great. So the next thing we want to talk about are the non-depolarizing medications. And again, these are broken down into three categories, the short acting and immediate acting, and then your long acting medications. So that's how we'll break them down. We'll start with short acting. With short acting, the main one is Mivacurium. And this is not seen in the US any longer. Possibly might be making a comeback, but this is a benzyl isoquinolinium, and that is the only time I'm going to say that today. And basically, those are the curium endings. So, as we go through these medications, if they are a curium, they are part of that drug class. In another discussion, we'll talk about reversal agents, and that's especially where this will be important to remember which of these blockers belong to which class. Mivacurium has a longer onset than sucks or even rocuronium, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but its duration is very quick. And so its onset takes about two to three minutes. Duration is only about 12 to 20 minutes, which is really nice if you are doing a very quick procedure. And then its metabolism is also with the plasma cholinesterase. The side effect that you'll see with this one is it has a really big histamine release. And this is something that we'll talk about with several of these medications. But with the histamine release, you can see cardiovascular effects, mainly hypotension and tachycardia as well.
1: So now moving into the
0: intermediate
1: non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. There's a couple of them in this category. The first one I want to talk about is rocuronium, also known as Zimmeron. So it is a aminosteroid. The aminosteroid category the main three are going to be racuronium, vecuronium, and pancuronium. So to start with racuronium, its onset is about one to two minutes, and duration it varies. Some different pieces of literature that you look at, but somewhere around the little over a half hour mark is the duration for it. So this drug is eliminated unchanged in the bile, and then 30% of it is going to be eliminated through the kidney. And the big thing you see with this medication that's growing is the idea that if you have a patient that needed an RSI, so a rapid sequence intubation, you would have needed to, in the past, give succinylcholine to have that rapid onset, and then SUX wouldn't last as long. And so if you had a short procedure that was only going to last 15, 20 minutes, that would be the kind of medication to give. Well, now that a couple years ago, Sugamidex was released on the market, and we're going to talk about Sugamidex more when we talk about neuromuscular reversals in that episode, But for right now, basically Sugamidex allows for a quick reversal of these non-depolarizing medications. And so we're able to reverse these non-depolarizing medications a lot quicker. So now we can use these medications for RSIs. So that's something to keep in mind that you could give now rocuronium with the idea that you're going to be able to reverse it with Sugamidex for a short procedure. So just because it lasts 35 minutes or
0: longer, you can now have the opportunity to give it for shorter procedures right and that's where it's important to remember what kind of classification they belong to so rocuronium would be an, an amino steroid whereas the mevicarium and some of these other ones are part of that other classification that I'm not even going to attempt again so it's just important to remember what classification of drug you're dealing with when you think about using sigmidex so the next one we're going to talk about is atricurium and this one is also a part of that classification that I'm not going to attempt again. And the onset of this one is three to five minutes. Duration is 20 to 35 minutes. And this one is important to remember for its metabolism because it is metabolized by Hoffman's elimination and then also nonspecific plasma esterases. The majority of atricarium will be metabolized by the non-specific plasma esterases but it also has this Hoffman's elimination as well. This one will have a large histamine release. So again, important to remember how that'll affect your cardiovascular system. The next one we wanna talk about is cis-atricarium, which is the cis isomer of atricarium. The reason that we like this one better is because it's mostly metabolized by the Hoffman elimination. And additionally, this one does not have histamine release. As you can imagine, there are specific scenarios where the cis-atricarium or NIMBEX would be a way better option than the atricarium. Keep in mind when talking about this medication, the byproduct of
1: it. So basically when it is broken down by the Hoffman elimination, the metabolite of it is going to be laudanazine, which can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause CNS stimulation. So you need to make sure that when you're giving different types of neuromuscular blockers, you also pay attention to what is the metabolite of each one. So in this case, it can cross the blood-brain barrier, cause this stimulation. And so if we're running it in a drip form, you should be watching for seizure-like activity that can develop from it. But the benefit of giving this cisatracurium, or NIMBEX is that, as Tanner said, it is not relied upon by either the liver or the kidney for elimination and breakdown. So basically we can give it in these patients that we would take care of that have either liver or
0: renal failure. The next one we're gonna talk about is Vecuronium. So this is the last intermediate acting one that we'll talk about. And this is also an aminosteroid. Onset is three to five minutes and duration is 20 to 35 minutes. So these intermediate ones are all onset of three to five minutes and their duration is 20 to 35. The only one that's different is Rocuronium. And that's where you have the quick onset of one to two minutes. Its duration is much the same as the rest of these, obviously since it's in the intermediate category, but just keep in mind the rocuronium is the one that has the fast onset. With vecuronium, this is going to be excreted in the liver, and then only about 25% of it is going to be excreted renally. So again, if you have somebody that has renal or liver impairment, this is where you might want to consider doing NIMBEX instead of vecuronium. So those were the four
1: medications we wanted to talk about for the intermediate acting. The long-acting one that we want to talk about is pancuronium, and it's an aminosteroid as well. And the thing with this is that it has an onset of about three to five minutes, and then it can last anywhere up to an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, About 80% of it is excreted unchanged in the urine. And the big thing that we want to focus on here is that it also has some cardiovascular effects. So it will block the M2 receptor at the SA node. So if you remember what I talked about with succinylcholine is that it stimulates the M2 receptor at the SA node and causes bradycardia. Well, this would be the opposite effect. So by inhibiting the M2 receptor at the SA node, in this case, it'll increase our heart rate and cause tachycardia. And it'll also increase our cardiac output and increase our MAP because it'll be increasing the amount of catecholamines that are released here at the heart. So that's something to keep in mind that if you have any patients with cardiovascular issues that you would not want an increased heart rate from, this probably is not the best drug of choice.
0: So I think with all of these, a lot of them are very similar when you talk about how it's metabolized, the length of duration, onset, those types of things. For me, it's really helpful to just remember what makes things stand out. So like you just mentioned, pancuronium, possibly don't want to give that with somebody that has some cardiac issues. Uh, If you remember how they're broken down, Nimbex is going to be the one that you'll want to use if they have liver or kidney injury. If you want a fast onset, but you don't want to use sucks, that's where rocuronium is going to be your best bet since the onset, even though it's an intermediate lasting, the onset is only one to two minutes. And then the short acting one, we don't see that in the US currently, but again, that one, the onset is two to three minutes, even longer than the rocuronium. It's just that the duration of it is shorter than the rest of them. The other thing to keep in mind back with NIMBEX is that that has no histamine released, whereas many of these others will have the release of histamine, which can cause these cardiovascular effects. The last thing we want to talk about in today's discussion is different drugs and therapies that your patient may be on that can have effects on your neuromuscular blockers. So remember that if you give a local anesthetic or inhaled halogenated anesthetic, these both can potentiate the effects of your neuromuscular blockers. Also, if they are on certain antibiotics, Again, this can cause your neuromuscular blocker to have increased effects as well. The other one we want to talk about is if your patient is on Dilantin, then your patient would be resistant to these neuromuscular blockers. Vecuronium is especially going to be resistant when their patient is on Dilantin. So these are the patients that you could keep giving them more and more of these drugs and it's not going to show an effect and you're not going to get your blockade. So make sure you look at your patient see what kind of therapies that they are on, as these may have an effect on the impact of your blocker.
1: Yeah. And so to expound on that, the reasoning why is that if you recall, Vecuronium is mainly metabolized by the liver. And what does dilantin do is it augments or increases the action of the P450 enzymes at the liver, which is basically going to cause the Vecuronium to be metabolized quicker, which means we need a higher dose because it's more resistant in order to have the same effects that we would see otherwise. So that's just kind of closing the loop there, just to remind you that Dilantin increases or augments the activity of the P450 enzymes in the liver. So anytime you see a patient on Dilantin, think any medication that you're also giving that is broken down by the liver is going to be broken down faster because they're on Dilantin. So that wraps us up for neuromuscular blockers. Uh, This is part two. If you didn't check out part one, I really encourage you to go back and we talk about the overall category of either depolarizing or non-depolarizing blockers and what they do from a physiology standpoint, but hopefully this makes sense and we can remember the big differences between the different types of medications as Tanner summarized there for us a few minutes ago to remember which one would be the most beneficial neuromuscular blocker to give depending on what kind of patient that we're taking care of.